When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate my time to my family, biking out in the mountains, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. Academic Language Experts, or ALE for short, is an author services company dedicated to helping scholars to elevate their manuscripts prior to publication, as well as helping them with their grant proposals to receive competitive research funding. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Vivian Bergen, Managing Director at Bergen Books. Vivian is a man- is Managing Director and Journal's Editorial Director at Bergen Books. In addition to overseeing the Journal's division at Bergen, her responsibilities include advancing the company's online initiatives and the strategic development of its overall publishing program. With over 20 years of experience in academic publishing, she previously worked for Blackwell Publishing and Northeastern University Press and currently serves on the AAPPSP committee and as co-opted member of the ALPSP Council. Vivian, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you, Avi. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited. Um, to be here and also I've really enjoyed your series um, so I'm really honored to be joining such esteemed peers. I, they've always, I'm always learning something when I listen to them so it's, it's really a you know, great joy to be here. Brilliant. I'm really happy to hear that you've had the chance to listen to some of them and the truth is is I have to admit selfish motives is that be being able to speak to really intelligent, um, capable, bright folks about the work that they do in our industry um, is kind of what gets me excited. So thank you for being part of that, um, being part of this series. Um, so I imagine um, I'm going to venture a guess uh, uh, with your last name as a giveaway that um, you weren't really, uh, you didn't really choose the career path of academic publishing, but it was chosen for you. Or is that incorrect? Maybe you could take us back and tell us a little bit about uh, your history in academic publishing and if it's something that, um, you know, how, how you came into it. Yes, it is true that uh, my name is not a coincidence, um, although I think I've had that comment made, so um, I guess it could happen, um, although with such an unusual name, not so much. Um, But yeah, so I was born into um, a publishing company, if you will, although I should say the company was initially founded by my mother, 
although at that time, I think I was probably already around five or six, um, where she founded the sort of earlier incarnation of Burkham Books, um, which was called Burke Publishers, um, out of the living room in England. So um, I really sort of grew up with it literally um, in our front room, ran around being told to sort of be quiet by a senior editor or so, um, making little books. Um, and I think I probably would characterize the firm as sort of the perpetual newborn sibling of the family, um, keeping us up at night and, and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, one you then come to love um, and, and obviously cherish and take care of. So, um, yeah, I, but I, I do think I probably had some choice in the matter. And I did, as you mentioned, sort of find my way back to the family firm, having then gained experience in other places, um, which was important, I think, for me to prove myself to myself as well as, you know, to others. Um, and, you know, I think also really valuable because of the things I learned and really saw different approaches and made some really amazing friends and colleagues along the way, um, you know, to whom I turn even now, 20 plus years later. So I think that was really important for me. Um, but yeah, I definitely grew up with a company. Um, my high school job was managing the subscriptions for our journals. Um, and um, I would definitely say sort of but my vision of publishing because of how small we started was really, you know, that it was somehow normal that every publishing firm had an editorial office in the front room, packing table in the hallway. Um, but th then that dramatically changed because my first Frankfurt book fair um, was when I was about 20 and I was studying in Germany at the time and I came up to Frankfurt to visit my mother. Um, and I just, I was blown away because I had no idea that this was actually an industry. There were people <laughs> and energy lights and it was just this electrifying just space um i just had no idea there was this whole sort of professional world out there so you know i think i was really struck by that and quite starstruck in many ways um i think i was also struck by how male and a percentage of sort of smart suits it was which was also very different to sort of my understanding of what publishing was um so I think I also then really, I mean, I've always appreciated my mother, but I think I really realized how remarkable it had been for her to really start something as a woman on her own and sort of just build this, this company up just, you know, in what was otherwise a very male sort of industry. That's amazing. It's a, you're, it, she is, she is very much, um, you know, and a role model, at least at least for me, in the sense of of you know my two great passions, entrepreneurship and publishing, and to be able to combine those, especially in a especially in a field whereby um, you know it's not necessarily wouldn't wasn't an easy way to break in. I think is is definitely leaves us a lot to uh, to kind of uh, try and be and, and emulate in different ways. Great, yeah. I mean, I think I would definitely say my mother sort of often jokes that if she knew what it took to start a publishing firm, she never would. <laughs> so I think there's also that element of uh, ignorance is bliss and sort of and when, when, when embarking on what is otherwise quite a massive feat. Indeed, for sure. Now, I wanted to ask you about, you know, your role um, at Bergen. And, you know, it sounds like you wear many hats, as I'm sure um, many small publishers, you know, and small publishing executives do. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about your responsibilities, um, you know, as kind of the, what's your official title? Editorial director, is that, is that correct? Managing director and journals editorial director. Um, and, in and, and just like kind of what that entails. 
Sure. Well, uh, well, I would say um, it probably entails also keeping keeping the peace within <laughs> between the mother and daughter dynamic more than anything. Um, I mean, half joking. Thankfully, we have a very good working relationship and personal relationship. Otherwise, I don't think this would work. Um, but ultimately, in a nutshell, it means essentially anything that's related to books, sort of editorial strategy, content um, is overseen by my mother, who's still very active in, in the firm. Um, and then anything on the journal side is then sort of my role. So in terms of bringing on new journals, um, developing the program. Um, so that's sort of my editorial hat. But ultimately, sort of I have a wider overarching role um, around sort of strategies, for instance, you know, ebooks is a great example of something that sort of combines books and journals in many ways and sort of the technologies of, of online journals and all the things we've had to do to move journals online um, has been very important for how we think about our ebook strategies. Um, so that's sort of where my role comes in as managing director. Um, we also have two offices, sort of keeping aligned, two offices aligned and sort of making sure that we... Um, manage departments across both offices because we very much share, we have a department, a marketing department that's then split across Oxford and New York. Um, so my role is in that respect very much sort of um, from a people perspective as well as sort of the larger financial strategic initiatives for the company as a whole. Got it. And were journals always a big part of, uh, of the portfolio or is that something that you've kind of been working on in more recent years? Yeah, from very early on, we had um, a small journals portfolio that I did sort of grew as I joined and we sort of had that as my focus. Um, but a lot of that is sort of ongoingly reflected by how the books and the journals really work well together. So these were authors or um, journal editors who came to us um, because of our books program. And before I even joined, had come to Marion and said, oh, we have this journal. Can you help us do something with it? Um, and so then we took it on. And so we kind of, you know, we had about half a dozen journals by the time I joined um, that were, you know, really well established and, and very closely connected to our books fields as well. Got it. And, and, and tell us a little bit, for those who aren't familiar yet, tell us a little bit more about Bergen as a publisher, um, kind of what, what would you say, you know, is your mission and what are, what are some of the fields that kind of, um, you know, are, are key priorities? If there are authors, I imagine there are some authors in the audience as well who are kind of, you know, working on their manuscripts. Um, what types of manuscripts are you looking to get in or what types of journals are you running? Well, sort of the two sort of main big pillars for our publishing program are anthropology and European history. Um, and those are sort of very much um, coming out of essentially also where my mother got her idea to even come into publishing in the first place, um, whereas she had studied, she had done her PhD in, in anthropology, um, and so was sort of um, exposed also to publishing because of her study. Uh, so she looked at German Jewish refugees to Lon in London um, and did a range of interviews, generational interviews, and met many um, founders or previous founders of publishing companies who were themselves were refugees in the UK. And so she was really introduced to publishing that way. Um, through anthropology and so as a result anthropology was then always a really important um, aspect of what we've published and continue to publish so very much a sort of love of the discipline which you know is essentially also how my mother then got into publishing um, and then the European history sort of especially within German studies um, um, comes on the one hand because my father so although we're a family firm he's not involved in the company sort of professionally um, he's a historian by training so his background was European history and so when she first started the firm 
Um, he introduced her to colleagues in his department. Um, and really, so that sort of helped her then think about and build out that side of the list. Um, wherein also very much sort of Holocaust studies was a very important list um, for us and continues to be, again, because of the exposure and the studies that my mother had undertaken. Um, and, you know, a real sense of, of duty and obligation to continue to publish works and, and continue to study and try to better understand in order to prevent, um, you know, series like that in, in, our, in our history. Um, so those, those are very much still strong areas. And, and then the list has sort of grown quite organically since then. Um, so, for instance, we have a budgeting film list um, that grew out of our German studies list. Um, so we had a number of books on German film, East German film, DEFA. Um, so that then became sort of the foundation of our film list. Um, and likewise, gender studies. Obviously, we've always had a strong interest in, in representing um, women and female scholars and, and sort of studies around gender um, and, and so this has also become an area that c continues to grow and sort of um, develop. So I think as a result, our list is quite nicely also very intertwined. So it has kind of a quite sort of nice coherent um, aspect to it that, you know, we continue to try and um, nurture, even as we have commissioning editors who bring their own personalities to the list as well, which, which is also important. Yeah, there's something nice about you, you know, your approach, obviously you want to be strategic about it, but on the other hand, you also using that subject expertise, maybe that, you know, you kind of already have, um, <clears throat> you know, and, 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 you know, kind of galvanizing that and, 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 you know, to, to grow the list seems to make a lot of sense because otherwise you're kind of collecting in areas where you might not be so familiar and your ability to really be, um, you know, particular about what you're taking and and be able to differentiate it you know the wheat from the chaff is probably very different so that's a really interesting i like that kind of approach which allows the personalities of the folks who work there to really determine and dictate what you know the direction of of the of the publisher and i assume that these things change over time in the sense that you know trends of what's you know what's being published and what people are researching change over time Right. And I would also say it sort of builds on our reputation because when you're sort of an independent publisher with a name, maybe that sounds funny to many people, you know, and, and they're also publishing otherwise in university presses. Um, you really have to, you know, it takes a long, many, many years of slogging of really consistent quality peer review standards, sort of the highest of all standards um, to really build your name. And so you also then need to continue to grow off your reputation in those fields, right? So that's also colleagues then, you can only really grow most effectively into fields where colleagues within the department know you from their colleagues who have published with you and trust them. So it then also becomes a really sort of, um, yeah, relational building of, of that reputation that then allows us to kind of continue to grow. and Yeah. I naively, I naively tried every um, marketing and advertising trick in the book to try and, you know, bring on authors only to realize after much hard work, sweat and tears that um, there was nothing that was ever going to compete with someone knocking on their, you know, on their neighbors or their you know, colleague's door and saying, you know, you, you got to work with these folks because they just, you know, are so wonderful. And, you know, um, and it's a good lesson, right? It's a good lesson that in this, in today's world where, you can kind of, you know, get marketed at, at or, or, or pay for marketing at any minute of any day in any place. Um, it doesn't replace the, you know, the, the, the value of a real true brand, which has something to stand behind. And I think you're, 
you're right. You know, a, 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 a publisher, you know, some, some, some publishers have are attached to universities that, you know, even without the publisher needing to say anything, just the name that's associated with that kind of give them so much clout and, 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 and sometimes deservedly so, and sometimes not as much, um, you know, but gives them that reputation without even needing to say what they do or who they are. And, and, and for companies or, you know, publishers such as yours and for companies such as mine, uh, we have to prove ourselves day in and day out. Right. And that's, that kind of keeps us at a very high level because we have no choice in the matter. Yeah. And any, and any foible or misstep is then also much harder to step back from. Right. So, you know, we, I think we, get away with a lot less than others might, which it's not a bad thing. I think it definitely holds us to a high level. Which is 100%. Now, I wanted to, in, in this context, um, you know, maybe this is a good good, good I, moment to talk about um, open access um, in book publishing um, because open access um, is, I think, in an in, in area which, you know, for the publishing world has been dealing with for, you know, has been contending with or thinking about for, for over, you know, over a decade and, and in, in serious ways. And even as time has gone along uh, much more seriously, not just thinking about, but also changing business models. I think for authors, it kind of hit them, especially the authors of some of the manuscripts that you're kind of working on, it maybe hit them at a later point, um, maybe in more recent years. Um, and I think the general understanding among authors is that kind of, well, open access means that now as an author, you want me to pay some sort of um, what's called an APC or an article processing charge, which, um, you know, or some sort of fee in order to publish my book, open access. Um, and that is kind of, uh, I think for the most part, at least from my conversations, um, it's not something that authors are kind of running around trying to do. So, so there's a lot to kind of unpack here, but I'm kind of curious to hear from you um, to what degree this this model of a processing charge for authors, right, and letting everyone read for free, um, to what extent it's relevant in the books world, um, and 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 kind of how maybe give us a brief history of 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 what's been tried and what, what what's worked and what hasn't. Sure, I mean I think sort of the APC or the with the books the BPC, which is you know pretty significant, although with APCs also can be huge. I mean the sort of Infamous example is nature's, you know, what eleven thousand dollar charge, but but even your average charge is three to four thousand dollars, which is a huge sum for any any scholar, but especially sort of an entry level, um, early career researcher. So I think you know for us, it's really been about the concerns about the sustainability of the model, but also the equitability or the the lack of, of equity in this model, um, because I think it really privileges certain privileged um, academics and senior faculty, um, and especially in the sciences. And I think this has also been a real concern for social science publishers with the sort of the, the bent on what sort of scholarship is out there and most widely available. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately it comes down to access to funds. I mean, as, as we all know in the social sciences, um, there's, ever, there's ever less money to go around um, and certainly not to pay the kinds of fees that are out there. Um, so that really does... And marginalize a number of already marginalized scholars, um, which can really obviously impact their ability to publish um, citation. You know, this kind of becomes this vicious cycle that really impacts everything from career development to just general recognition in the fields in which they're publishing. So I think it's a real concern. Um, you know, I think especially, as I said, for the kinds of scholarship and the kinds of voices that then are becoming more widely disseminated because they can afford an open access fee. Um, 
And again, this is, I mean, for books and journals alike. So, you know, we've definitely been an early kind of proponent of, of alternative models. Um, so collective funding models such as Subscribe to Open, which is now been a model that we've been working on for a number of years, um, which started out in journals, but there have been sort of iterations of it for books in recent years, which is also, I think, really exciting. Um, and essentially what that's doing is pooling together library funds. So this is library budgets that would be allocated to buying those books and journals once they were published. So in paywall, subscription, or just general um, book price, um, and then pooling it together and putting those funds to making the book open access. Um, so in practice, it means a lot of well-funded libraries are then really stepping up um, and providing the means for an author, not necessarily even at their own university, to publish an open access elsewhere. Um, but even at their own university, they're also then able to help maybe more junior um, faculty members publish in a way they might not otherwise be able to. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me that we've kind of, you know, made this decision. I don't know if it was a con well, it was somewhat conscious, but we're 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 kind of having to decide between the readers and the researchers, right? Because by moving everything to open access, so yeah, it's wonderful for readers and it brings research to well beyond the walls of academia. But for the researchers, it all of a sudden creates this great, you know, inequity that didn't exist before, right? So it's then it's a then it's a values question of like, well, what's actually more important, right? Do we want and and I think that we're all aiming towards you know the best in both worlds is that everyone can read, but also everyone can publish, and we're just trying to figure out a way around that. So how so? Tell me a bit more about Subscribe to Open and 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 how successful has it been, and what are some of the impediments to making just that kind of be the standard for all books. Well, um, I mean, we've, we've been really thrilled with, with what we think has been success over the last, I mean, we're now entering our fourth year. So when we started in 2019 to really first starting sort of approaching libraries about this model, hardly anybody knew about it. Whereas now, you know, every industry publishing library conference, there's something, whether a panel or some, some conversation around subscribe to open, um, for better or worse, because sometimes, you know, now you can no longer, you have to really engage with different narratives and different understandings or misunderstandings about the model. Um, but I think, and also because it's a model that's still extremely new. And so it's also evolving and needing to evolve as we sort of learn more as we go along. Um, so, I mean, you know, we've been really proud of what we've accomplished. So our original um, collection called Burke on Open Anthro included 13 anthropology journals. Um, so we were able to fund the last three years fully open access. So the entire journal articles of all 13 journals made open access. So this is hundreds of articles, researchers of all levels, all regions of the world able to publish and, you know, be read um, in ways that they otherwise would not have been able to. Um, so we were, you know, we, we really see this as a success. And um, now we're in our second phase um, and the collection's now grown to 15 journals um, and we're having also really important conversations with societies who are really stuck on open access and really trying to find ways to create sustainable models um, for open access in ways that they also stand behind ethically, because I think there is a larger concern that APC is this sort of pay-to-publish model that you know, really does perpetuate inequities in publishing um, that were, you know, are there in the closed world as well. I mean, I think one of the challenges with sort of prestige journals is the kind of author they continue to publish and sort of therefore perpetuate sort of echelons of types of faculty and types of perspectives 
very conventional scholarship, right? So I think some of the more niche adventurous scholarship that's happening by younger colleagues, it makes it it's much harder for them to break in into the into the into you know scholarship that way. Um, so we've been really pleased with that. And on the book side, we also we have a migration and development list, which is again one of these lists that grew sort of out of our anthropology um, list and really grew not only um, for refugee studies but also looking more at development. Um, displacement, place, you know, displacement in place, which can be also around sort of economic um, development and, and problems there. Um, and that we've been able to fund 15 titles by the end of this year in open access, again, through sort of a collective um, funding approach where we partnered with Knowledge Unlatched, um, who were, they were sort of really early pioneers of this collective funding model. I mean, they really helped us by pulling together also across libraries, um, across publishers, they went to sort of libraries to then try and fund entire collections of books um, and really helped us sort of raise funds in a way we never could have done because of our small size. I mean, we simply don't have the ability to go and meet with these libraries and sort of talk to them about the model and, and ultimately um, also give them enough critical mass to make such a decision. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Got it. And, and is it, you know, are these libraries making individual decisions about which journals and books they're interested in, or do they kind of leave that, that, you know, the editorial decisions up to you and it's kind of your determination about what gets funded for open access and what doesn't? Well, it's still very much rooted sort of in the curation role and collections role of the library. So, which I think is vital because I think that also ensures that there are still these quality checks and also, I think, keeps publishers again in check. So, I mean, you know, they are making decisions based on the title. The, because sometimes the title can change and sometimes they are looking at very particular topics, maybe not down to the actual title level, but it's overall down to whether or not they can trust um, the publisher because this is a collection that they're otherwise buying. Um, and so, for instance, on the journal side, I think it's publisher reputation has has different impacts, I think, how, how journals are viewed differently. Um, but I think with our initiative, we did find that our book reputation and anthropology really helped us have these conversations with librarians because they knew of our books list and then also knew of the journals we were publishing and that they were high quality journals that they then wanted to fund. And I think this is a very timely conversation in light of, you know, what's come out this week, which is Clarivate kind of delisting a number of journals, not in, not in, I don't think in your fields, but um, <clears throat> more in the sciences because they didn't, um, you know, adhere to some of the stricter peer review or, you know, just quality assurance processes. And I think, you know, my, my sense, and, and, and I'm curious to hear from your perspective and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but um, you know, my sense was that this, you know, publishers started started a second guessing and doubting themselves. Well, if we're always about quality, but everyone's just going towards the quantity model and, you know, no one's looking after the quality issues, then are we going to kind of be left in the dust? And I think that my, my sense is that there was a collective sigh of relief this week when some of these journals did get delisted, not because of, you know, no one wants to see uh, another publisher um, 
fail or be embarrassed, but simply because it means there is at least some sort of standard bearer or you know quality assurance that 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 that's being upheld, so that it's it's not just that kind of anyone can you know hang up a shingle and 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 put out what they want with minimal to no peer review and and, and pass it off as you know high rigor science. No, definitely, and I think I mean I think these indices and this whole sort of accreditation system is certainly problematic <laughs> in terms of how they select journals in the first place. Um, you know, I think it's very hard to get onto these journals, um, onto these indices as a smaller journal, as an area studies journal, as a social science journal. So I think there is some gatekeeping going on that's, I think, uh, benefited from scale and quantity and size of certain publishers and certain journals. Um, but, you know, indeed, there are still very clear indicators that they use. I mean, also a couple of years ago, for instance, ethics statements became really important part of the, the process, right? So, you know, I think they they do provide important checks and balances. Um, but, you know, it's still within a certain parameter that I don't know is necessarily helpful for certain journals, smaller journals. Um, although I will say sort of the emerging, emerging, the emerging sciences citation index um, has become this sort of interim step into the bigger ISI um, index. And I think that was in recognition of the fact that they were missing sort of so many important layers of journals and needed to find a path for them. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately anything that's holding publishers and journals accountable to quality and, and their processes is, is a good thing for sure. Yeah. And, and do you think there is still room for sort of the traditional publishing models, you know, um, which are closed and, you know, but, but maybe don't cost anything to authors for those books that can't be, you know, away through subscribe to open or other alternative platforms? Or do you think we should really just kind of cut the cord and say, you know, we're going towards an OA model and, um, you know, it, it will be what it will be? No, I definitely think... I think there needs to be a diversity of models. I think sort of traditional legacy models will definitely still stick around. I mean, we're still sending print journals of, you know, to, to certain libraries in certain parts of the world. I would never thought we would still be doing that sort of this many years into sort of online journals, given the expense and hassle of getting a print copy over certain borders. Um, but I, I think they'll definitely stick around also because I think there's such a difference across industries and across sort of disciplines in terms of who needs what and, and what works best and how it's funded. Um, I think there are clear benefits to open access. It's, it's a clearly provides a wider readership, um, which has, you know, a range of, of really important um, knock-on effects for the, for the research and for the author. Um, but yeah, the question is who will, who will and how will it be paid for? And I think there are other, um, innovations that we've seen in the last decade or so. I mean, even eBooks, for instance, I think even just an eBook has immediately increased the number of ways a book can be read, even within that one library, right? So I think there are other ways that will work in parallel um, for some time to come. But I, you know, I think our goal would be at least to find some model that would allow us to you know, make, make the most of the real benefits of open access. For sure. Um, I want to move on to the last topic that I really wanted to discuss with you today, and I guess it's it's related to the previous topic, and that is um, what has been come become to be known as the peer review crisis. Um, you know, for those who are less familiar, 
Um, generally, what's meant by that um, is that it's extremely difficult um, and becoming more difficult, seemingly, for publishers to find peer reviewers uh, to, uh, you know, review the works that are that are being submitted. And what ends up happening is that you've got these authors who are waiting long periods of time in order to kind of publish their book and aren't hearing back from the publishers. Um, and the publishers have done everything they can, but they just simply have not been able to, to you know, kind of, uh, you know, either find or, or get a commitment from a reviewer to actually do um, the review that's needed in order for it to be considered peer reviewed science. So, you know, I imagine this issue always existed, but it seems to be a lot more, um, you know, a lot more problematic now than it used to be. So kind of what do you maybe give us a little bit short, brief um, overview from your perspective of kind of, you know, if you if you believe that it's gotten worse over time, and if so, kind of what do you attribute that to? I think it has become worse because I think also, I mean, in many ways, it's, you know, we're not happening in a vacuum. So I think sort of we're sort of very, very much part of what's going on in the wider, I think, crisis in, in higher education more generally, right? So we're talking about significant cuts um, to departments. So researchers not only, professors have to take on far more students, but they're also required to take on far more administrative responsibilities within the department. So essentially, they're being stretched, 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 have ever less time, all while they themselves are under greater pressure to publish more and more quickly, and all while then also being asked to peer review, and because it's an, you know it is a vital part of the overall um, field in which they they themselves are contributing to. So I think it you know it's a really sort of important part of the process all around, um, and I so we can't sort of it, it very much impacts this, and all of these come to play, and I think have become worse and have become more of a pressure for scholars. Um, they just simply have less time. And with the time that they have left, they're asked to do even more. So I think it's just really, a, to me, sort of an extension of these wider crises that are also impacting library budgets, of course, which impacts then our ability to sell those books or those journal subscriptions. So it's really become a, a wider problem um, that, yeah, I think is, is really concerning um, and you know completely understandable. And I think... There's also at the same time, there's less recognition or less appreciation of peer review. I think the same way as we've seen um, with journal editors. I mean, to be a journal editor used to be, I think, far more valued within the university itself. So journal editors were given sort of course release. Nowadays, they have to often buy their way out of it. So it doesn't sort of have the same level of value and just service itself is sort of increasingly devalued because there isn't some very exact quantitative way that it can be measured. Um, so I think all of these sort of impact agendas are really pushing and have compounded this overall problem um, on top of the fact that there's just far more, far more books being published and articles than ever. Um, you know, we've also seen this tied to some extent to open access where some open access publishers have really, you know, are churning out a lot of material. And that also adds further kind of pressure on the overall system. Yeah. And, and what would you respond to, you know, reviewers who, or, or academics who kind of see peer review as a, you know, publishers taking advantage in the sense of, you know, generally, well, it's interesting because I, I know generally in the journals, world, it's generally not a pay, you know, reviews are not, are not remunerated. Um, maybe in the books they are, you know, probably I would say symbolically more than, you know, real accounting for time. Um, 
you know, and, and, and obviously on a very pure technical level, you know, legally, most, most researchers contracts do include some sort of review, but kind of, you know, how do you see that? And, and like you said before, it's kind of just gets pushed to the bottom of the pile, considering all the other responsibilities they have. So how do you kind of, you know, uh, respond to those researchers and what do you think are maybe some of the solutions that we can find to really kind of, um, maybe elevate the status of reviewers or, or, or give them some sort of credit for their review? Well, I, I think the grievances that are sort of um, voiced are, are totally legitimate and I think are very much tied to also what's going on with open access. And I think ultimately, I think there are some really trends, sort of concerning trends that have gone on in publishing, um, driven especially just by the ongoing consolidation and sort of dominance of very large corporate shareholder organizations um, that I think have really um, continued to drive this, right? So I think there's this real concern and this real sense that authors are being nickel and dimed everywhere they turn. And, and I get it. I think it's completely valid. Um, you know, I think it's really just become, publishing has become ever more transactional in that respect. Um, all the while, I think many publishers have cut back on the services, you know, they were providing. Thankfully, I mean, it makes a business for, for others. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately these aren't what um, publishers should be providing copy editing and, and, you know, advice and guidance in ways that now has become a sort of an add-on service. Um, and then you turn around and have to pay an APC, which is often be very high. So I think, you know, all of this sort of comes together and creates this ongoing and completely understandable resentment. Um, I mean, I think another area that I've seen that I find really troubling, and we've seen this as a book publisher trying to help our authors get permission, let's say, for their monograph, um, where they have a chapter that's based on an article that they published. Sort of the shift also for publishers to charge permissions fees to authors to republish their own works. You know, I think this is, again, sort of this whole sense that all the while there are certain publishers who are continuing to make make money all the while these are the same journals from the same publishers turn around and then ask them to perform peer review um, for free. So I think it all is very connected. Um, and I think it's just indicative of what has been this really troubling shift um, away from this much more relational reciprocal um, approach to publishing that I think is so important. And I will say what many of us do. <laughs> yeah, we had a humorous thread on our work um, WhatsApp this week, whereby um, one of the one of our employees who herself published a book um, was offered to buy her book, uh, a hard copy of her book at a discount, which she she appreciated. And then and then there was another case where one of them was off was asked to review her own work, um, which was also kind of, you know, half humorous, but also half, you know, sad kind of where we've gotten to in this, um, you know, in, in in this regard. So I think it's, um, you know, and I, and, and the way I see it, you know, kind of the pandemic put things over the top when people really had to make decisions and prioritize and cut everything that wasn't critical. Um, especially, you know, those early and middle career researchers who, you know, have families and have other responsibilities, it, it, you know, it kind of just, um, got pushed down to the bottom of the pile. So, you know, I, I think, first and foremost, there's a recognition issue, right? It's like, it's, it's, um, you know, making that more, you know, obviously it needs to be a blind process going in, but, you know, on the other side to, to recognize the efforts of those peer reviewers, I think is the very basics of that. And maybe remuneration comes along with it as well, but, um, but there's definitely more work to be done in this, in this 
you know, in this regard, if we are going to kind of be pumping out, either we need to kind of slam the brakes on the quantity, which um, hard to imagine market forces kind of enabling that. Um, but if not, you know, at least sharing some of that, um, you know, uh, and, and, and I think the only way that will happen is if authors kind of, you know, do um, make their demands about the recognition that they get uh, for some of the work that they're doing on the reviews. And I think they can also be selective in who they review for. I mean, I think it is also about saying, okay, I have certain values that are important to me and, and certain publishers fulfill those and align with that and others don't. And I think make that known. I mean, we recently, a journal's editor just said to me that um, they're in the subscribe to open collection and a reviewer had said that, oh, they would review, they otherwise wouldn't have, but because of the initiative and they wanted to support that and they thought it was a good thing, they would, you know, they would then be happy to provide a review, right? Otherwise they couldn't have. And I think that shows that I think you can make decisions that also send a very clear and strong message. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and no matter how, you know, technological we get, uh, you know, I think it's important to remember that those relationships between the editors and the reviewers are very much, you know, personal relationships and span across, you know, careers and, um, you know, lifetimes and not aren't just a one off, you know, kind of, if we spam enough people, we'll find someone who eventually will uh, will do (laughs) it, which is is definitely, you know, that is a, that is a tactic that's being employed in, in, by right. certain publishers, but Definitely. thankfully not Bergen, and I imagine you know, not to be <laughs> by Bergen. So, yeah. um, I mean, this is—I think this this you know, basically brings us to the end of our of our uh, chat today. Um, if anyone wants to kind of uh, follow up with you, or I don't know if you have a social media presence, or or maybe you know uh, you want them to check out the uh, the the publisher's website, kind of where 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 can people follow up if they have uh, you know questions or comments on. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so on our website, Um we have a strong social media presence. Um, we have an anthropology handle for those in anthropology, history handle. Um, we also have a film, cultural studies, media handle, and we have a regular handle. Um, so we're, we're very busy on social media. Um, and then we also have a podcast, which is a relatively new, um, something that came out of also the pandemic um, which we really enjoyed putting together, although we appreciate how much work it is um, and, and how, how much time it takes. Um, so you can definitely find us there. And then we also have um, a blog, which we sort of where we have authors talking about their works and the latest sort of collections and, and what we're up to. So you can find us in a, a number of places. <laughs> Fantastic. And if anyone wants to check out, um, you know, this episode, which, uh, um, or I guess you've already listened to it, so you don't need to, but if you want to check out the rest of the series, um, and any other content, um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. That's my name, Avi Stamen, uh, or on Twitter at ALE, uh, underscore, uh, underscore translation. Um, thank you so much, uh, Vivian for joining me today. It's, uh, it was really kind of nice and neat to hear your perspective, especially, you know, as a small independent publisher and kind of what that means and the challenges and the ups and downs and, you know, uh, and, 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 and sharing some of those, you know, shared experiences of being, a you know, entrepreneurial kind of, uh, prove it every day, uh, company that, that really kind of spoke to me. And, um, I'm really glad we had this chat and I'm glad that, you know, you're able to participate in the series and yeah, hopefully this will be the beginning of, uh, of many chats that we have down the road, um, as, as we go along. Looking forward to it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk about these things and yeah, onwards and upwards, as we like to say at Breton Books. (laughs) Brilliant. Thanks so much, Vivian.